Welcome to The Elephant in the Room, a podcast exploring, well, the questions we need to be asking. For CrossCut, I'm Steve Scher. Why can't Seattle hold on to a superintendent for more than a couple of years? Seattle Public Schools is in the market for another school superintendent. The next person in that position will be the seventh in almost a decade. One issue may be the job itself. The average tenure of an urban school superintendent is about three to four years, and that's an improvement. Superintendents seem to have the same staying power as losing NFL coaches. Are the people in these positions set up to fail? And is even focusing the question at the top level of leadership obscuring the real factors that determine the success of a child in a public school classroom in Seattle. Zithri Ahmed Salim is nonprofit executive and developer of several award-winning STEM education programs. He's director of program strategy at Technology Access Foundation, designed, directed, and launched the TAF Academy, the first private-public partner school in the United States focused on science, technology, engineering, and math, serving students of color and underserved communities. Thank you. Thank you. Yolanda Gilmasandiri is co-president of Community Parents for Public Schools. She is also teen director at the Smilo Rainier Vista Boys and Girls Club Teen Center. She is the proud grandmother of three elementary students and two middle school students. Thank you. Thank you. Kimberly Mitchell is the founder and CEO of Inquiry Partners, a global professional development organization focused on inquiry-based education. She works at the University of Washington College of Education. She is board chair of Green Dot Public Schools. She has two children in Seattle Public Schools. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So part of the reason I asked you folks to talk about this issue is because you are parents with kids in the school. My first question, I guess, is just that one and and address it most broadly. Zithri, why can't Seattle hold on to a superintendent? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of... um, I think it's every system is designed to produce the outcomes that it's currently producing. And I think by design, we just uh, have adopted a model of leadership that is ineffective and not sustainable um, in terms of keeping highly qualified, highly connected people uh, in those roles. Why would we do something like that by design? <laughs> I don't know if it's uh, if it was intentional design, um, but certainly I think it's the it's the. Practice and it's the result of of unintentionality, um, especially where it relates to connecting to communities in a in a deep way. Um, so we adopt a model much like you mentioned earlier, an NFL coach or even a CEO of a company, where there's this disconnectedness between the types of people who get into those roles and where they see themselves in terms of their career trajectory and mm-hmm. uh, where communities are at today. Hmm. Yolanda, how would you answer that? Why can't we keep a superintendent? You know, I'd have to agree with Zithri thus far on what he said, but I think that overall our system's not set up for success. Um, It's very dated in a number of ways, and I think we um, are facing incredible challenges at a number of areas or a number of levels. One is our school board uh, structure. Uh, Another is when we look at how things are set up for kids to enter our school district, Uh, such as the lack of um, early learning and education opportunities, uh, which need to be universal. Um, And, of course, we have that great, huge issue, which is funding, or the lack thereof. Yeah. When you said dated, the system's dated in one way? Give me an example of how it's dated. Well, from my understanding, our system was structured based on the industrial age. And since then, things have shifted majorly. We live in an information age. And with that, uh, it means that we need to structure an institution as a Seattle School District in a manner that invites um, innovation, that invites creativity. Uh, We need a system that welcomes uh, huge human human capital in, in new ways. And I believe the current system doesn't allow for that. And also, it doesn't allow for a real innovator to come in and really look at structural and systematic changes that could uh, ultimately change the way we do business and, most importantly, how we educate children. I want to come back to that question of roadblocks, but the same question to you, Kimberly. Why can't we hold on? I think um, I would agree with both Yolanda and Zithri. I also think there aren't enough people who really care 
And I think there is this, um, that we as a, um, a city have been satisfied with mediocrity and in many cases with low-income children and children of color. Um, we have not advocated enough to do what I believe a superintendent uh, needs to do, and that is to close the opportunity and achievement gaps in the city. I think it's too easy for people to opt out of the conversation. Um, many parents have opted out of public schools. The electorate, if they don't have children in our schools, have opted out of the conversation. So we need to ensure that people start caring again about this system and designing a system that works for all kids, not just some. Now, in talking to, to all you and to talking to other people, one thing that you, you pressed me on and, and, and you pressed me on too, I think you all did really, was that maybe we're looking at the wrong question because we're looking at a top-down question. Mm -hmm. Why has it been so hard to look from the grassroots, Sithri, and look, look up to answer this issue? Well, I think it really depends on... Um, which community you ask, and if you ask, you know, four people in four different communities, you'll get four different answers. So um, I'll speak from the perspective and standpoint of a person who grew up on Yesler, um, attended Garfield High School. Um, I think a big part of it is we just have a habit, an institutional habit, um, as it relates to districts of, of both um, marginalizing and, and choosing not to hear voices or looking at the wrong data, um, or not collecting the wrong data, even choosing to acknowledge that it's there. Um, so from that standpoint, um, you know, I spent the last four weeks walking around the central area uh, in preparation for Hack the CD and just talking to families, talking to, to students. And for the most part, people are unheard. Um, so we really can't, from a, at, at a systems level, we can't speak to what's happening in those communities. Um, and the people who do um, who are heard typically um, are the usual suspects and not necessarily fair brokers and, and true representatives of, of the needs of those communities. Communities aren't being heard. I talked to, to a, who's now the superintendent of the Port Townsend schools. Mm -hmm. You all recommended me reaching out to him. Mm -hmm. His argument was the next superintendent has to do two things, has to have holes in the bottom of his shoes by the time he spends 100 days in that position because he needs to walk into every community and at every school and meet everybody he can. And he wonders whether we don't need a sheriff. Uh, so let me ask the second part first, Yolanda. Do we need a sheriff to be a superintendent? You know, I wouldn't go as far as to say we need a sheriff. Um, we do need someone who has some backbone and some courage to make some radical change um, to the system. But I, I would go even further. I think um, we need, at all levels, leaders who are committed to really ensuring that quality education is the number one priority for our state. And I'll start at our state legislature. Um, as you well know, the McCleary decision was, was granted by our highest court of the state uh, just last week. Um, they also ruled that the state legislature was uh, actually, um, what is it, they... Oh, in contempt. Mm -hmm. In contempt, exactly. I mean, what more can you say that, that says it all? So we have a funding issue, but I think also looking at it from another angle, when we look at our board of, of, of directors that are, to they, are there to help manage uh, what happens in the district, um, they are part-time workers. They don't get compensated. They are charged with overseeing one of the greatest or largest responsibilities in our public uh, uh government. And so how can we even begin to grapple with the change that needs to happen, let alone um, be able to support a leader who will serve in the capacity of a superintendent for the largest school district in our state to, you know, how do we make that happen if we don't have full-time support? So one of my recommend recommendations is that we really look to our state legislature to ask them to come up with a uh, jointly supported uh, bill that could begin to pay our our board of directors, our school board of directors. 
it might be a little radical, but I think that's something that needs to be a part of the conversation because they work in step with the superintendent. Everybody says kids are the first priority, I support the schools, and yet we don't seem to solve the basic problems of the achievement gap, crowded schools, teachers needing support. So are they lying? Or are they are are they pulled in so many directions that they don't keep their eye focused on the client, the child? Right. That's a great question, Steve. I think, again, it goes back to early learning. Uh, the data shows that when we invest early on, there's a greater chance for children to succeed in school, meaning they can make it and graduate at the end of their high school years. And so early investment and early learning means that we provide universal pre-K, and then also we provide all-day kindergarten. And for a district the size of the Seattle School District, that has to be a top priority. Otherwise, we're kidding ourselves. I don't know about any of the past superintendents, but if I were a superintendent, I'd want to be signing up for a winning team or at least a team that has potential. And if you know coming in the door that you are going to have a hell of a chance trying to even get the, the, the scores uh, in the testing to rise or even make a dent in them, um, well, then that's the first thing I'd be looking at, early learning. Yeah, I was going to say, well, one of the things that struck me is, you know, thinking of our students as clients of the system, and they're just not um, the way things are today. If you think about the model of Facebook, people who use Facebook aren't the clients of Facebook. They're the users, right? The clients, the actual customers, the advertisers. So we have a similar situation with our public ed- education system where um, students are just seen as, seen as users of the system. Mm. And the people who are actually the uh, customers of the system is, is a good question <laughs> because it's certainly not the students and the families, um, certainly not those students uh, from impoverished backgrounds and those students of color. So I think that's part of the problem is that we've built an economic engine and kind of this layer of, of business on top of um, the matter of educating students and, and where their value um, is just seen as users of the systems occupying seats and, and not necessarily uh, the intentionality in, in providing real service. I mean, follow up on that with me because why aren't the students, I understand that they move through and so there's a different student in that chair every year, but why aren't the students the, the client? Well, I think there's been attempts over the years to gather student voice through student surveys beyond student satisfaction surveys, but to really get a sense of how students are perceiving their experience in the classroom, in individualized classrooms. But I'd really like to return to this idea of the superintendent because I think leadership really matters. I do agree that early learning, more funding, listening to student voice, they're all critical components. But I also think, you know, leadership in the classroom, leadership at the school level, and leadership at the district, and I believe the research backs me up on this, it matters, it makes a difference. And I'm, I'm thinking back, I don't know if you guys remember when John Stanford was here, yes. I had this real sense of pride at the time I was working at Chief South High School. And I can't actually point to a specific program or policy, but I, can't, I will say that we all felt good because we had a strong leader who then in turn could collaborate and communicate with various people, the unions. How well was he able to connect with the union, the school board, various communities, and and that momentum was starting. He built up incredible capital in this community that I'm not sure he was able to spend that capital um, before his death. And then I think to someone who I respected and admire greatly, and that is Maria Goodloe-Johnson, who... uh, If you look at the data, she was actually a superintendent who was beginning to close the the achievement gap in this city. She was making some very, very contentious, bold decisions, but she didn't build up that capital that she needed, and that communication was uh, needing to communicate with various constituencies. That didn't happen. So I, I just think we have somewhat unrealistic expectations for this leader at times. Um, I often tell people that the superintendency is a bucking bronco ride. It's very hard to hold on to, and I think that's a national issue. I don't think Seattle makes it any easier. 
I think we have a very small and very vocal group of people who make it extremely difficult for the leadership at Seattle Public Schools to get the job done. Who? Who are those people? I'm not, you don't need to name names, but what's their interest? What's their constituency? You know, why are they, why I think are they it's, even doing um, that? I think it's people who um, are very focused on um, neighborhood issues, specific issues in their community, and and people who don't get the big picture and don't have all students in, in mind when they're advocating. But what's your reaction to that notion of Stanford or Goodloe Johnson as having been leaders who were putting us on the right track? And Yolanda, I'll ask you that same question too, but Zithri? Yeah, so my perspective is, is more, I was actually, I think, a student during when Stanford was a, a, a superintendent. And... Um, I think there's some, you know, there's the technical things that change about the uh, the district and, and schools, and those things evolve and, and shift. Um, but on the adaptive side, what really happens, you know, when you're walking down 23rd Avenue on Cherry or on Union? I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, be in front Sorry. of that mic. It's, it's a okay. cardioid mic. It goes like that. Yep. But go ahead. On the adaptive side? So on the adaptive side, I think, you know, when you walk down 23rd Avenue or you walk down Yesler or you're in, you know, Bryant Manor or you're, you're down on Henderson, um, I haven't seen real change uh, in talking to families. You know, I know some outliers. I know some exceptions. But in terms of the overall impact that this district has been having on my community, I haven't seen real change, uh, regardless of the superintendent. Um, so, again, it's, it's what problem are you trying to solve? What, what's your focus? Um, who's your client? Who's your customer? Um, and, and how do people see themselves in terms of their role as leaders serving these communities? And I think you're, you're accurate in saying that, there are folk, you know, north of Montlake who may be a little bit myopic in how they see education and what's important. And, you know, the minute you get momentum at a policy level or at a district level, uh, they can roll the wheel back a little bit on you. Um, but even that being what it is, my mentality tends to be more of a hacker and say, so what? Now, what do we do? Um, and if you look at what we did with TAF Academy, and I, I would like to point out, you know, Superintendent Tom Murphy and and his folks down there, Josh Garcia, Sally McLean, um, at, we were, uh, at uh, Federal Way. Federal Way, yeah. Yeah. So we were able to go in and establish a, establish a real partnership um, where, you know, we didn't need to um, go through a lot of the, the, the bucking bronco <laughs> type of uh, uh, dramatics that, that can play out in the backdrop of, of education. It really was, you know, a, a superintendent and, and his staff um, wanting what's best for kids and realizing that the district isn't the end-all and be-all of, of solving those problems and allowing and, and inviting, um, that's the word Tom Murphy used, extending the invitation to TAF to come in and, and be able to provide some of those sources, um, those resources. And I think until you get to the point where we stop looking at districts and schools, um, not just from the standpoint of not having all the solutions, but as you look back at the funding equation, you know, people talk about equity in education. For me, equity is what appears on a balance sheet. And we have to look at not just the funding of schools, but the funding of communities to empower themselves to actually provide solutions um, in the education space. If that's really what we want is to close this gap. It's not just about funding more teachers and districts and, and superintendents. Yeah, those things are important. But what we really know from history is that communities have to lift themselves up. Yeah. Hence the hack, the CD, which is about helping businesses start in the CD, in the yes, central sir. district. Yes, sir. Your thoughts about the, the question of leadership, um, uh, Stanford and Goodloe Johnson? You know, I was um, actually very attracted to uh, Superintendent Stanford when he was around. I remember him just having these this huge rally at the Memorial Stadium and teachers, parents, kids, everybody just showed up and we were all just jovial and happy. And, you know, we thought we had a great leader at the helm. And I believe the majority of people in Seattle would say at this point in stage in in our history that that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I will go back to what Zithri just said about um, the lack of equity in our communities. And we well know that there's a huge disparity with what happens uh, south of the Ship Canal versus what happens north of the Ship Canal. And if we don't have a leader or leaders who are willing to look at that, um, then we will definitely get nowhere. I would definitely have to say that um, I do believe that 
uh, communities need to be lifted um, from the ground up and they need to be empowered with the resources, uh, be it economically, socially, you name it, to, to, to get the job done. With that being said, I believe that parents play a huge role in that. And how we engage parents matters in this district. Um, so at the end of the day, I just believe that the leadership that is required at this point in, in this stage is one that um, can look at the real um, challenges that we face and then who's willing to, again, roll up their sleeves to, to do something about it. But it can't be, oh, we want the same thing um, in the North End that exists in the South End and so on and so forth. It has to be um, based on what the true needs are of a community and, and then going from there. Yolanda Gilmasandiri is a longtime community and education activist. Kimberly Mitchell started her career as a Teach for America teacher in 1991. And uh, as he said, the three odd men, Salim, uh, grew up in Seattle, grew up in the streets, had to, had to figure out how to navigate this system. This is uh, the elephant in the room from Crosscut. I'm Steve Scher. Why? Who creates the roadblock that doesn't allow parents to have a stronger impact in the classroom? Is there a who to that, Kimberly Mitchell, or is it structural? Wow. Um, well, you know people point they say, oh, it's the staff, or oh, it's the teachers' union, or it's teachers not willing to accept help. But you're all involved at the classroom level in this, in this and so I'm wondering what you think. <laughs> you may be asking the wrong person because I actually feel like in some neighborhoods, and including the neighborhood in which I live in northeast Seattle, there's, <laughs> there's no shortage of parents who are helping out every day. It's almost like schools are being helped to death. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. To death by parents. <laughs> yes, I think sometimes it could. It definitely gets in the way sometimes of of people doing their work. Um, so I would cede that question to to people who. Well, is that part of the same issue that you were mentioning about uh, different interest groups? As if you were saying, can roll things back. They're so embedded in the school that they're not seeing the big picture. Uh, absolutely. Ah. Absolutely. Where where where, where do they? If that's the case, there are enough parents involved, then what's the, what's the issue that's keeping parents from, you know, we say children are the customers or the clients. Or really, it's, it's the parents being well served. So what's keeping them from being more fairly served? Yeah. Or who? I think the who is a, is a really large and complex question that spans multiple generations. And we have to be you know, honest about the society that we live in and, and have some truth telling to really get to the core of that. Um, what's the truth telling that you would start at? I, I think it's like what's at the basis of inequity in our in our communities. Like, how did this start? You know, where did where did inequity come from, and, and where did these disparities come from? If you look at Causal's work, um, or John you look at, uh-huh, yeah. you look at uh, Derek Bell's work. Um, there are people who narrate to that, um, so we don't have to uncover those. But I think having those those things as more of a prominent part of discourse, you know. Why are African-American boys, you know, four to five times more likely to be disciplined in their schools uh, than their white counterparts? Um, when you start asking some of those questions, and rather it be around behavioral data or achievement data, I think you start getting to the, to the uh, root of some of those challenges. And it really is a, you know, we don't, we don't like asking the who question because everyone at the table could, could look in the mirror and point the finger because it's us. We're a community. And we all have um, roles in making sure that um, our system and our, our communities are, are more equitable. And to the extent that, you know, we do or don't do that each day in our lives, um, we're all culpable. Um, but each of you are working for multiracial nonprofits. Mm-hmm. I mean, CPPS is there are whites, there's blacks, there's Asians, there's Latinos. Same at TAF, same with what you're doing. So it's on the table. Mm-hmm. Is it, is it, uh, who's, who's keeping it from being the truth telling, I guess, might be a way to ask this, Yolanda. You know, it's quite interesting that um, the subject of parent engagement is pretty much kind of the buzzword out here as it relates to nonprofits that serve schools, the community based organizations. Um, at CPPS, the interesting thing is we just uh, applied for a grant to. 
um, take on or adopt a program that was founded in Chicago. In fact, last week I was there to learn about the program, and that is the Logan Square Neighborhood Association um, model or program that deals with um, parent mentors. It's a program that allows uh, parents to come in, be trained, um, and work directly in the classroom with teachers. Uh, They also have time for leadership development, uh, professional development. And what it tells me, um, and based on what I've learned, especially from um, nationally renowned uh, author uh, Pedro Gazzaro, Nogueira, excuse me, he uh, was able to do some research and go to a number of schools around or in communities around the country. And what he found was uh, that schools that open their doors beyond their regular hours, um, who engage parents where they were, basically were there to provide the wraparound services and partner with the CBO organizations in the community to come in and to work with uh, families and children after hours were more successful. They found that parents were more engaged, and in return, kids were able to learn and succeed in school. Um, So the Logan Square model basically has adopted that approach to education and to parent engagement, and that's what we're going to bring here to Seattle. Well, Kimberly's saying that maybe there's too much love in North End schools, (laughs) so is is there not enough parent love in South End schools? Is it, we've heard in the past, oh, parents aren't engaged in these, in these communities. And I think we know what the quote marks mean, right? Well, the truth is, I believe parents are engaged in schools uh, in the South End. The challenge is, economically, um, the needs are different. When you have a household that may be ran by a, a single parent, and you're the sole breadwinner, you don't have the luxury of being able to show up at the school anytime. Uh, Does that mean that you care less about your child's education? No, not at all. It just means that in order to keep food on the table, to keep a roof over your head, you got to ensure that you have a job and that you have some income coming in. That's the difference, and that's what separates the the parents in the south end of our city versus the north end, um, is the lack of uh, mobility, lack of social and economic opportunity, and at the, at the end of the day, that is the determining factor. So how does the school or the school district respond to that? And um, there's this, uh, I mean, there's, there's teachers who are supposed to also be advocates for their students, and there are principals who are supposed to be advocates for their students. So how do you think at Seattle Public Schools, we started with this question of what the superintendent's doing, but how are the principals and the teachers uh, engaged, or are there are there are they encountering blocks? I think that you have you have some inconsistency. You have teachers and principals who are doing an incredible job, despite a lot of support, and you have some who are not doing the job, who are not showing leadership. But I want to go back to this the the importance of the superintendency because when you have a revolving door with a superintendent, you have a revolving door with senior leadership. So I'm just going to read this because it's, it's jaw-dropping. Um, we are, as you said earlier, we're on our fourth superintendent in four years. And since 2005, we've had seven chief financial officers, seven VPs of human resources, six executive directors of special education, four chief academic officers, four chief operating officers, five chief information officers, three general counsels, three communication directors, and three deputy superintendents. And in 2012 alone, 36 principals and assistant principals, that's 20% of the total leadership, left the district. This is incredible churn. An organization cannot find its footing with this kind of churn. So... (laughs) It, you know, it's pretty miraculous that we're holding on, and it's also not surprising that too few of our students aren't getting the education they need and deserve. That's Kimberly Mitchell. I want to. What's your What's your reaction to the, that churn? Is that Does that frighten you? The way it frightens her? No, not at all. How come? <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I think there's there's the technical and there's adaptive, and the the history of the relationship between the community that you know I hail from and and the the folks in those roles. I mean, these aren't known 
faces or even titles, you know, uh, in the community. And it's I think it comes down to a culture and a credibility gap in terms of how do you actually reach out to a community. And if you if you keep applying technical solutions to an adaptive problem, you just never get anywhere. Give me an example of what you mean by that. So a technical solution, if you're talking about a let's just use the example of I like to hike mountains a lot. Okay. And, uh, you know, I can go in and I can break my arm and a, a doctor can technically cast it and fix it and I'll be okay. But as to the adaptive part of, hey, stop hiking mountains that are outside of your league. Um, they can't follow me home. They can't do that. Um, so what we try to do in, in terms of solving public education is we try to do this, you know, uh, triage at the superintendent level or at the district level um, to fix a problem when the actuality, the, what's, what's the root cause of of what we're seeing in terms of our communities is much deeper and much more complex. We don't like dealing with that level of complexity. We don't have the cultural currency to go into those communities and actually deal with them in a way that actually modifies behavior or invites a behavior to be part of the system in a way that's different, that shares power in a way that we currently don't. So I think, you know, yeah, you can have uh, administrative turnover. You can have um, I think I'm more concerned about principal turnover at the school level because that happens at the at the building and site level. But um, is that something that I, I, you know, in terms of agenda setting that I would say, here's the agenda I want to set. Here's what I want to solve. No, I want to solve this this issue that I, I'm, I'm more connected to, which is, you know, this gap between how we respect each other as communities, um, including the communities that, you know, are in South of Mount Lake and the community of educators and the community of professionals who, you know, are in the positions to serve them and receiving resources to serve them. When you, um, when you consider principles uh, as part of this question, as, as, as Zithia was saying, Yolanda, do we, how do we keep principles engaged so that that churn that, that Kimberly mentioned isn't, isn't affecting at the school level? Or what is happening, do you think, to, to create this sort of churn for principles? You know, I again believe that there are cultural differences that exist and really a cultural problem that exists in our our district and with that being said um, for one when we look at say the schools the 20 schools that exist in southeast seattle we have a very diverse population of students um, but when it comes to leadership um, from the classroom level on up, it doesn't reflect uh, the student populations. And so even when it comes, boils down to recruitment, you know, it's often said that, oh, we can't find qualified candidates to serve in various uh, positions throughout the district, um, especially from other parts of the country. Well, again, it speaks to, and it goes back to the cultural or the lack of um, cultural uh, integrity um, and challenges that exist here in our, our, our district, in our area, in this city. Um, if we don't begin to address that, um, then uh, we, we won't get anywhere. We won't get the quali- quality or qualified uh, leadership and teachers that we need to serve our children. Um, this all points back to um, the social and economic, um, all, just all those issues. And if we don't address them again, we will be at a deficit. I went and spoke at, to Trish Zico at TAF Academy to ask her some questions, a woman who runs it. And uh, she, she repeated that very statement. She says, oh, I hear all, all the time from people, but we don't find qualified people of color, is what she was addressing. And she said, come here. And she stood up and she said, look, look out there, what do you see? And I said, I see a room full of, of, of a multiracial group of people. And he said, that's right. I find them. Why can't the district find them? So if it's a cultural, if, if at its roots a cultural issue, again, we're at the grassroots here, why can't the district find them? And the dist- by the district, I don't even know who I mean by the district at this point. <laughs> Again, I, I don't think, uh, I, I agree with Zithri that there's adaptive changes that need to be made as well as some technical ones. But with a shaky ground, you don't have a team of people who have developed a relationship with the community and relationships that are longstanding with communities of color and be intentional about identifying, recruiting, 
um, hiring and supporting the best people for our city schools. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, part of this is, is kind of this paternalistic mindset that the people aren't already in the communities. And there's an assumption that, you know, uh, the central area can't help itself. South Seattle can't help itself. It needs to be rescued. Um, I can tell you by, you know, by a head count, there's capacity there. There's ample capacity there. Exactly. Now, is there capital there? Probably not. We don't want to invest in those communities. And that's just a fundamental problem that we've set up a false meritocracy that allows people who don't have cultural connections, who don't have deep investments in those communities to come in and really receive resources in the form of welfare for not providing a service. Um, we have to go and actually look at those communities and say, who are those leaders in those communities that we should be investing in? What are those programs? What are the tasks? What are the Rainier right. Scholars? What are the Martinez Foundations that are in those communities? And raise those programs and those organizations up. And the people who are receiving money for not providing a service, what, what needs, who are they and what needs to happen to them? Anyone who has a bad track record, I don't think we need to get a magnifying glass to find them. Um, but I think we have to start looking at, you know, how do we take what's working and the people who are connected and, and raise those narratives and those organizations up and what can we learn from them? So um, if we have this mindset that, that we're going to uh, somehow miraculously overcome, again, multiple generations of, of disenfranchisement and disconnectedness um, and not knowing and somehow put some technical solution in place or some superhero superintendent in place and things are going to be great. And that's just not realistic. That's, that's not even rational thought. Um, we have to look at our communities and say, who are our heroes in our communities? Who are our, our uh, leaders in our communities? And we have to raise these people up. And that's the way it's always been done in our community. Um, nothing has been conceded. I'm, I'm always impressed at the ongoing optimism of black folks and, and impoverished populations in this country yes. to continue to expect things out of these institutions that just haven't provided much. Um, so I think if we're going to get it done, we have to start looking at where the work is actually going to happen. And that's folks like me. I'm a high school dropout um, originally, and I you know, just graduated with my undergraduate degree in June. Um, and uh, here but I But you've am. been working in the system, uh, on the STEM system for how many years? Fifteen. I'm a hacker. Well, who gave you the uh, who gave you the in <laughs> to start doing that work? Uh, and that's what it is. It's not about who gave. It's who shared. And that's Trish. Shared. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Trish. Who shared the work? Trish. I would say Trish. Yeah. Yeah. She met you when you were a student. Mm, she met me when I was just coming out of uh, the space of being having bad experiences and that same experience that she had of being the only one or being in isolation uh, on the east side and was looking for a place where I could go back and have an impact. And there's you know, I got David Harris. You know, we have a, a laundry list of folks who would do this work if we would put resources in place for them to exactly. do it and get out of their way. Exactly. But we don't want to do that. We want to pay people to come from across the country with national organizations to come in and think they can provide solutions. That's just not real. Well, who's the we that, that Zeth is talking about? Are we talking about uh, the school board, the uh, community interest groups, teachers? Who's the we that's not I, opening up? I would say all the above. Everyone you just <laughs> mentioned. Um, and, you know, it's, it's re- it really boils down to job security. Folks are in their positions, in their roles. They're very comfortable. They're used to privilege um, in a lot of ways. And so at the end of the day, um, push come to shove, if they have to choose doing the right thing, um, providing or inter- uh, basically inviting the, the right folks to the table to really – impact change versus them holding on to their position and their job security you know what's going to be decided and what the decision will be so there's some hard hard decisions again that have to be made and um, who's going to do it Um, that's that's the question well that's what we point to a leader for right but tell me something before I come I circle back to that how do we bring the teachers union into this conversation in a way that they are partners and not the enemy we don't have enough time steve (laughs) (laughs) i think think at taff academy i mean we work with our teachers unions and they are they're they're a collaborator in terms of what we do at taff academy um from the outset i mean from the first time we sat down with with the folks um in federal way the union has been there and has been supportive of the work that we've done so i don't i don't think we need to castigate the unions as as the enemy or you know obstructionist um because I, i i do feel like people at the end of the day uh, at least ideologically want the same thing. And if we have the time and 
um, space to sit down and kind of go over these things, you know, then, then we can reach common ground. Yes. And that's, I mean, TAF Academy is a, is a partner school. It's part of Federal Way Public School District. Um, and that's the beauty of it, you know, is, is that we do. We have worked with the union. And I think not all unions are the same. Not everybody um, has the same leadership. But I, I don't think we should, we should automatically make that assumption about um, uh, uh, unions. Okay. You, you agree? I agree. And I, I believe that. But you that run into some roadblocks. I believe there's room for change uh, across the board, yeah. unions included. Yeah. So. Teachers feel threatened, though. Um, I'm sure they might feel threatened, but um, at this point, we have a school-to-prison pipeline in place, and uh, it needs to be dismantled, and we know who's in it. It's little black and brown children, most importantly our boys, and uh, can we afford to allow that to be in the wealthiest nation in the world? I don't think so. You know, following up on something Zithri said and what you're saying, I mean, I, I... That pipeline has been in place for too long. Mm -hmm. And I think I would, uh, I do, and I do want to blow it up because because this pipeline, whatever's happening seems not to be working for the people who are going to be the next generation. Um, Can I just speak to um, something what Zithrius was saying about the unions? I I think what, what concerns me is the imbalance of power wherever it is. And I think race comes into this conversation as well. But teachers unions are set up in the interests of adults in the system. And, you know, I'm a former union member. I I, I get that. But the problem is there's an imbalance of power because who is looking out for the students? They don't have a union. Uh, Parents don't really have a union either. So that's where I think it gets really tricky is that you have an imbalance of power there. You're listening to The Elephant in the Room. It's a podcast from Crosscut.com, exploring the questions that we need to be asking. Yolanda Gilmasandiri is an activist. She is co-president of Community Parents for Public Schools. Kimberly Mitchell is the founder and CEO of Inquiry Partners. It's a global professional development organization based on inquiry-based instruction. And Zithri Ahmed Salim is a nonprofit executive. He's developer of several award-winning STEM education programs. We've been talking up here, we've been talking at uh, 30,000 feet. You all have children in the schools. Tell me something that you see happening in, the, in your, your grandchildren's classrooms, Yolanda, that, that makes you feel good, that makes you feel excited about what they're learning and what the system is offering them. You know, um, the best thing I can say at this point is um, I'm happy that my grandchildren who are in the school uh, district right now, that they have um, family members like myself who can advocate for them. And what it boils down to is choice and options. Um, I'm happy that because I'm their grandmother that I'm able to advocate for them and say, you know what, I want them registered here in this school versus another one. You know, in our district, we have um, schools that are ranked from one to five, and um, a number of them exist in southeast Seattle, where my grandchildren live. And the lower so, ranking ones. Exactly. And so at the end of the day, I think the most positive thing that I can point to right now as it relates to the, the classroom efforts is that I can send my grandchildren to a school that is faring a little bit better than some of the others. Um, and so I feel very fortunate about that. Am I happy um, and satisfied about it? No, I'm not, because I know that had it not been for someone that's informed versus others who are not, you know, that wouldn't be the case. And at the same time, I live in a community. So if other children aren't faring well or other children have to go to lesser performing schools, then I believe that we're all impacted by it. So I can see some good but I definitely want to see uh, a lot more. Sithri, I know you, you, you touched on this. You were a student who, who dropped out. You also have come back. You're engaged in the system, and you have kids in the system. Anything in the schools that they're in that gives you a, a daily positive yeah, I like, sense? In our school, we, uh, we actually use Second Step, and I like the intentionality around social-emotional learning. Um, 
and uh, the types of conversations that are invited at the classroom level around safety, around just being aware of, of others and having um, empathy uh, is very encouraging because that didn't exist when I was in, when I was in school. So um, it's, it's refreshing to have um, both those conversations with my daughter's teachers and then also to have her coming home with new language uh, to describe things that she's experiencing uh, that just when I was eight years old weren't available to me. And and that's enough to keep you keeping those students in those public schools. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I think safety is a big issue, um, especially for you know um, my girls. It's 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 huge, you know, and, and having their esteem intact um, is is something that doesn't happen for a lot of our our young women of color. Um, they're they're in constant bombardment through media. Uh, in every other way. So to go to a place where they can feel good about them, they can feel good about uh, the way they look, the way they talk, um, the, 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 the background of their family, and, and there's some intentionality in the adults in the building around that um, is refreshing. So in that sense, the district or that school and the principal involved in that school yeah. is doing a good job. Absolutely. You have kids in the school too, Kimberly? What I do. I, um, I would say that I'm satisfied but not elated. I'd like to be excited and elated. And, of course, they have teachers who have been remarkable. Um, But I think, you know, Yolanda mentioned advocacy. Um, Like her, I advocate for my kids. We all know who, even within the the school, we know who the good teachers are, right? And we advocate for them. And the parents who don't have the wherewithal, the time, the energy, the language skills, you name it, they don't advocate. So the kids who need the best teachers don't get them. And I think it goes to the schools as well. And my concern being on the North End is, is how we continue to separate our, our children. Um, and, you know, some people might take issue with this, but I think APP, Spectrum, all these badges that we put on kids to separate them from other children is really dangerous. And, I, you know, I grew up in Ballard, and in the 70s, I, my parents um, signed up for voluntary busing for the desegregation program. So I actually spent my, all of my elementary years in Columbia City where um, I was the minority. And I remember them giving us, even though I was the minority, they, they put us, most of us who were white at that school, in a separate class. So this I still see being perpetuated in our schools, and I'm just amazed that, you know, now I'm in my 40s, we're still a city that is so separated by race and income. It's very sad. You both told me you see that too. Mm-hmm. Well, what we know there that it's not accurate in terms of people's intelligence, so what changes? Well, would you get rid of it, or what changes that? Um, I think Federal Way um, started in, in Tacoma Public Schools now is adopting policies that um, have the outcome of automatically accelerating students. And I think that's a good direction to, to start. I'm not saying that's the end all, but it, it's a good direction to start. What you does know? that mean, automatically so that, accelerating? That means that if a student qualifies, if for some reason they're not you know, um, being held back, recommended for being held back, that they automatically go into AP or APP, um, that that's the default. Um, not you opt in, but you have to opt out. Right. Uh, and I think that's a good place to start. Um, I know EOS, um, Equal Opportunity Schools, does some of that work in terms of finding missing students and getting them into um, advanced programs. But I also, you know, my caution is, you know, being a student who was in AP courses, um, I still think that's a low bar. Uh, AP's a low bar. Yeah, it is. Um, I, think we, um, I think in terms of where, what our students are capable of, and, and the assumptions we make about what happens in AP classrooms and who AP teachers are um, are, are a little bit unfounded. <laughs> um, so I, I, w- I would be a little bit uh, skeptical or, or maybe just a little, yeah, that, that getting more kids into AP and AP-style instruction is the right way to go. Um, I'm a big proponent of project-based learning, and, and I think there's value there as well. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and that's, you know... I started Inquiry Partners for that very reason, is that we want to see all children thinking deeply and critically about things and problem-solving on a regular basis, and we shouldn't assume that AP always offers that. And there are AP teachers who do it, but... 
but they're also you yeah. know regular classroom teachers who who, who do, do it. it as well yeah. yeah i think another thing to add is um programs like the ib program at rainer beach the international baccalaureate uh program i think is very promising to me, it takes a different approach to, to learning. Um, it opens the world up to um, our kids in the classroom. And um, I have set in on information uh, cafes or sessions. And what I saw, I was quite impressed with. And I even said to myself how I wish we had this available back when I was in, in school in the Seattle Public School District. So we definitely need to adopt more um, opportunities for kids to enter those type of programs and just as Zithri mentioned about federal way instead of kids having to opt in they have to opt out if they don't want to be in it but automatically they are signed up before I wrap on this take a moment uh, to tell me what community parents for public schools is and what what you're trying to accomplish Well, CPPS, as we call it, Community Parents for Public Schools, is a national organization, and we are a local chapter here in Seattle. Um, We work with parents to promote uh, advocacy in schools, so we provide trainings, and as I mentioned earlier, we we we, um, are adopting a new model where we are creating a parent mentor program where parents get the support they need to go into classrooms and support teachers and most importantly support children and in return they also get uh, training opportunities so that they can set goals and advance their own their own career um, opportunities and growth and and take a minute to tell me why you're working on green dot schools rather than spending all your time in the public schools well I'm spending a lot of time in the public schools so um Green Dot Charter <laughs> Public Schools um, is an organization that I've always respected and admired. I, I taught for several years in Los Angeles, and I know people who started that. I've been down there to watch what they do up close. And I think um, Washington State is ripe and ready to see new models like TAF Academy, but other models of um, school that works for kids and teachers alike. Ripe and ready because competition will give the kind of shakeup that we've been talking about? That's not, um, that's not necessarily what I think the point is. I think um, it's good research and development. I think that we need to see, uh, experiment with new models um, and see how we can achieve better results um, with the same types of resources and students and um, lift up what works and, and let go of what doesn't. And, and TAF Academy and the whole STEM program that you've developed, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the crux of what you see occurring for the students you're serving? Um, I think it's the connectedness. It's the fact that, um, for the most part, our staff are very connected to the communities that we serve. We're from here, um, kind of northwest grown. And uh, that affords a certain type of relationship and cultural capital and, and that it's you don't have in a lot of places and and then building you know sound practice instructional practice and pedagogy and uh, uh research-based and evidence-based um strategies on top of that is is kind of the the secret sauce you know but i think it starts the foundational level is the connectedness um and starting with something that's homegrown so i'm going to go back up to the to the thirty thousand foot level you get called in by a school board that is looking at policy and governance and not meddling, and they say, we're going to hire a superintendent. Uh, what, what are you going to tell them? What's the, what's the most critical thing they can do in picking the next superintendent? You know, I wish I could just say that my biggest um, concern that I would address with them would be around how they select the next superintendent. But I, I would be doing a disservice to, to myself as well as to our children and families if I just started there. I would definitely encourage our school board to consider making some major changes. It's almost like um, someone preparing their home to, to put it on the market or, say, a, a landlord who's preparing a, a space to rent out 
you know, you got to go in and you got to refurbish things. You got, you have to replace some things. You, you actually have to throw some things out, um, literally. And that all points to we need drastic systemic change within our district leadership. And uh, so in our recruitment of the next superintendent, we really need to take into consideration the rest of the major leadership roles. So we need to go in and clean house. We need to really look at how we can set up a structure that will ensure um, growth, um, that will ensure um, just best practices just across the board. What I see so far, and based on what was shared uh, around the track record of the, the major turnover in the district, um, it's clear that we have some internal issues um, that have to be addressed. So that's where I, I'd say let's do the housekeeping and cleaning first. Then, and also take our time as we put the word out and do our national search. And in the meantime, let's, let's sure up the, the district. Let's sure up the administrative uh, aspect of, of what exists now. And let's really cast a vision of what we want, um, not only for the district as a whole, but for the next superintendent that will step into that, that role. How would you answer that the, the question? They're going to call you in. She says, uh, Yolanda says, some people need to lose their jobs. I think that's fair to say. In essence, yes. So no one worth their salt as a superintendent is going to come to Seattle right now. Mm. Uh, you, you can't get it's a big much. Paycheck. To, uh, well, it's uh, yeah, it's obviously not enough. Um, it's it's already a difficult job, and we make it more difficult. We make it more difficult because. We have a school board that has traditionally been unable to govern in the way that school boards should govern. They meddle. They get overly involved. I mean, we just had a situation with a textbook adoption. So if, if I were a superintendent, <laughs> I don't know. I think I would think once, twice, three times before accepting a job in the Seattle Public Schools. So I think what we need to first do is, I think it's, a, it's the fingers pointing at all of us in this city. It's getting all of us voters, all of us community members to start paying attention, to start voting. We, you know, school board elections are on an off-cycle year. I don't even know the percentage of people's, people that vote for the school board members. I don't think it's very high at all. Um, so we have an electorate that's not engaged. We need to wake up, realize that these are all of our children, that you can't have a great city unless you have a great school district. We need to vote in people who can do this job um, as a school board. We need them to have ongoing training, and I know that the Alliance for Education has been supporting training. I'm not sure, you know, if they're getting the return on the investment. And then we need to attract maybe homegrown folks, people who can lead this city's school district and do everything in our power to keep them here long enough for them to put down some roots because right now we have superintendents we have a great honeymoon or we have a lousy honeymoon. We need a marriage. We need a superintendent who can stay here more than five years and create some stability. And like Yolanda said, to look very carefully at the people whose job it is to ensure that our children every day walk in and out of the school feeling challenged and happy and excited about their work. And I would throw teachers in that mix too. Teachers need to be feeling that way too. Um, and I do think, I do think we start need to start looking very carefully at the, um, the school board, the election cycle, um, who we recruit to run for the school board. I don't know if offering them a paycheck to do this job is going to get us quality. Who knows? I think that's up in the air. People have talked about, you know, the, the mayor getting involved and appointing a number of folks or doing more at large instead of district by district elections. Um, the point is, that our school board needs to be functioning so we can attract and keep the best superintendent in our city. Yeah, I um, I think you saved the toughest question for last. <laughs> and uh, I, I really would say there's a maybe a council of folks that I would go around in the city and say, these are the people you should be talking to at the community level um, and, and try to get community voice 
in the process and and get some commitments up front about what is the role is it feedback is it input um what role does community play in in making these types of decisions and um what are going to be our norms of engagements in terms of uh, how the board uh, acts, how this superintendent who's coming in, how she acts or he acts. Um, but I think it starts with the community. I think you have to go into the community and really um, raise up some leaders uh, and start there. Yolanda Gomez-Sandiri, Kimberly Mitchell, Zithri Ahmed Salim, I appreciate you all talking to us about this. Thank you. We recorded this at Town Hall, which is one of those places where these kinds of conversations do take place. I appreciate them letting us be here. The Elephant in the Room is a production of Crosscut.com and me, Steve Scher. Thanks for listening.